Good evening. How are we doing tonight? Welcome, everybody. Before we get started tonight, if you've been coming to Crossroads for at least some time, I think you know that we really, in our minds and in our hearts, exist for the city of Grand Rapids. We we're going for it. We, we want Jesus Christ to be exalted. What we just sung, we want people to know that. Um, so we exist for our neighbors, our neighborhood. We exist for the city. We exist for the nations. And we also recognize that as we get bigger and bigger, that it's easier and easier for our church to just be a bunch of spectators. And just know, like, we are fighting that with all of our might. But we also know that there's one church in Grand Rapids of which Crossroads plays its little part. Um, and we value our partnerships with the churches. And there are some churches even that <laughs> I think if, if maybe I was sitting where you sit, and I was feeling like I was becoming more and more a spectator. Uh, some of these churches would, would, would look good to me. Um, one of them being Soma. Uh, Soma, actually, this next Sunday is going to be launching their Sunday service for the first, or kind of in a, in a re-kickoff. But they did not start their church by saying, hey, come to our Sunday thing. They started their church by forming a community of people and doing life together and being about the gospel, and then other communities spawning off of that, and then said, let's, let's have a Sunday morning. So if you are feeling like you're a spectator, and you'd love to put your hand more to the plow, um, I definitely would like to put before you Soma. And Aaron is here tonight. Aaron, come on up here. Aaron is my good friend, pastor of this church. And Aaron, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to say. <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Rod. Man, we're just humbled that you even invite us up on the stage to share uh, about what we're doing. It's just yeah. such a beautiful expression of the Church of Grand Rapids. And um, we're a church of missional communities, as he shared. We started with missional communities, and we're launching our Sunday morning gathering next Sunday at the David D. Hunting YMCA. And uh, we need your help. If you're at all interested in saying, man, I'm interested in missional communities, I want to go on mission to the city, and uh, I'm all about relational discipleship in the everyday stuff of life, I'd love to talk with you. Um, one of the ways you can connect is go to somagr.com slash connect and uh, just fill out a little bit of information. We'll be in touch with you. Also, if you want more information after the gathering, I'll be in the upper room and would be happy to talk with you and share more about what Soma is all about. So let me yeah. pray for you, man. Yeah. Jesus, we need you. We recognize that uh, this gathering is centered on you and has you as the focus. And so I pray that... Um, we as one church of Grand Rapids would, would be surrendered to you and that you would use Crossroads and Soma and many other churches to reach the unreached of this city. And we pray right now that the gospel would begin to explode in our hearts so that we would be a people that are sent 
the rest of the week and share with others the good news of the kingdom of God. Pray that you would empower Rod to speak your very words through him. And would you soften our hearts, increase the humility, and get our eyes off of ourselves and reorient them back on you, Jesus. We pray all this in your majestic and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. Did you come this morning? Yeah. Yeah, I could tell. <laughs> I love that. It's a fun time. This is a great time to be alive. There's such a time as this. Okay. Do we even know what we're studying these days? John. Love it. Okay, good. Um, we've been in this now for the last three weeks. Um, John is the fourth gospel. The first four books of our New Testament we call Gospels. We call them that because uh, they are written by eyewitnesses to, to the life and ministry of Jesus. And John being the fourth um, writes this with such intentionality, knowing that the other three are already out there and in circulation and being read. So he is now carefully choosing all the right stories, events, teachings in Jesus' life to give us a complete picture of Jesus. And here is his aim as he lays out Jesus. He wants us to see him, to behold him, as John beheld him. Because he believes that if the eyes of our heart could truly see Jesus for who he is and who he was, we would place our life completely in him and have life in his name. So with that being said, I'm excited to step into the book of John. Let's turn to John chapter 1. I know it's fourth week, we're still in John chapter 1. I hope that's okay that we're going at the snail's pace so far. I think it'll pick up a little faster, but maybe not much. Beginning at verse 19, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now this was John's testimony, his witness, when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but, but confess freely, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am a voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah nor the prophet? John said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not yet know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You may be seated. Okay, so our text is about a man named John, and I, I want you to know this right at the outset. We're not talking about the disciple of John who writes the Gospel of John. We are talking, this text is about one famously called John the Baptist. 
In fact, all four of the Gospels talk about John the Baptist because John the Baptist is a huge deal. And I was trying to capture this for you, like, um, who, who, I mean, how, how do we make sense of John the Baptist uh, when we didn't live during that time period or, or witness who he was or what, we, what he was about? Uh, the best modern-day equivalent I can give you of John the Baptist would be Billy Graham. If you could take Billy Graham and put him in John and Jesus' world, you have the closest thing to John the Baptist. Now, even when I thought that this week, I thought, wow, it's almost sad that there is a generation coming up that hardly even knows who Billy Graham was. But then I thought, who cares? We have technology. Uh, sit back and consider Billy Graham. I mean, everywhere this man went, he went to every continent in the world to preach Christ. Every place he went, he filled stadiums, arenas. And it was like every time he preached, half the stadium would come forward and receive Christ. Billy Graham, everybody. This is so John the Baptist. Uh, in, in Mark's gospel, you, you get just four verses in. And it says, and John the Baptist went into the desert preaching the forgiveness of sins. And then the next verse it says, and all Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the desert to be baptized by John. I mean, think about that. Not just a few people, not even just a lot of people. All of Judea, all of Jerusalem, made their way to see this man in the desert, John the Baptist. And many of them were baptized. Now there are some things that are very curious to me when I think about John. Because the Gospels give us several different clues into his life. Uh, the first is that John's dad is a priest. This is in Luke's Gospel. Uh, the priests in Jesus' day are those who run the temple in Jerusalem. And already you're just kind of like, that doesn't really mean anything to you. Um, let me just first of all show you the temple in Jerusalem and what that looked like in Jesus' day. Uh, this is done by an archaeologist taking all the archaeology. And, and you can see even the backdrop of Jerusalem of Jesus' day. Uh, but what you are looking at is what we call the temple. And that's going to take 
a lot of space in John's gospel as well. Uh, the temple is the religious, political center of Judaism. I mean, the whole identity of the Jewish people is tied to that building. That building, by the way, is on this platform. You're looking at the courtyard. That's three football fields by five football fields. That's just the platform. And then the building itself, uh, called the Holy Place, the first room and then the back room, the Holy of Holies, uh, literally is God's living room. And, and, and this is hard for us to think this way because when we go to church, uh, you don't actually see it as, as, as God's living room, that, that God lives there. Uh, but, but to the first century Jew, um, th- this is why they would go there every year, sometimes as many as three times a year, as far away from, they come from Rome, Babylon, uh, Alexandria, all over, wherever they were living, every year at least once, they would make the trek to Jerusalem. And as they were going there, it's not that they were just going to the city, but it's literally like we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. Uh, That's where God lives. That's Eden. That's heaven. We're, We're going to heaven. And so, because of this, The people who run that are the priests, the Levites. And you can imagine the elite status that they had and the privileged lives that they lived. I mean, the temple in this time period was a a money machine. Um, And and so the priests and the Levites in Jesus' day who run the temple um, are at the top of the food chain really in every way. And they are known by their uniform. Uh, You could pick out the priest. Oh, there's a priest. There's a priest simply by what they wore. Now, here's the crazy thing. You couldn't aspire to be a priest. You couldn't go to college to be a priest. You were born a priest. You were born into the tribe of Levi. And being born in that tribe automatically gave you priestly status. Jesus could never be a priest. He wasn't born of the tribe of Levi. But John was. John was born of the tribe of Levi. His dad is a priest. So the question is, what is he doing in the desert? And he's not just out in the desert. He's literally living in the desert where he's left all his priestly status, his priestly life, his priestly uniform, he's put on his Elijah costume, and he lives in this desert. And by the way, he's not alone. Because there are other, there are hundreds of priests who are also out living in the desert. Uh, Priests who left their life, left their status as priests, and to live in this place called what we know today as Qumran, it's a place in the desert. So let me just show you a couple of slides so you can envision this a little bit. Uh, If you look closely, that is Jerusalem. And we are looking east, up the Mount of Olives. And now all of a sudden it becomes desert. 
And if you follow that desert far enough, you see a little blue. That blue is the Dead Sea. And then those mountains on the other side are today the mountains of Jordan. John essentially leaves his life in Jerusalem and goes into that desert. And hundreds of priests, thousands of priests, have also done the same. Let me go now zero in where they went. Now you can feel the desert. There's the Dead Sea. Uh, That is the place that they inhabited, uh, where they lived. Uh, Give me one more slide. Now we're looking at their campus called Qumran. Uh, You see it down there, that little circle, and then that square. Now, (laughs) I'll go back to this slide and, and the other things. Why? Why would you leave all that? Your comfort, your status, your life as you know it. To live in a desert where it can get to be 110 degrees. Well, Lord Acton's famous phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, I think applies here. All that status, wealth, power, made the temple very corrupt. It was defined by greed. And worst of all, people started to realize God was no longer there. Ichabod, if you know that word, Ichabod, it literally means that the glory has departed. God's glory, his presence is no more. Which is why we're going to read what we're going to read in John chapter 2. Jesus, like these priests, is also disgusted with the temple and and, and everything that is going on here. Uh, But this group of priests decided to wash their hands clean of it, to go live in the desert. Uh, We know that they took some temple scrolls with them, the Isaiah scroll being one of them. And then they scrupulously made their own copies of God's word. Uh, copy after copy of, of, of these scrolls. And then he stored these scrolls uh, in caves, only to be discovered in 1948. And we now know these scrolls as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what we know also from their writings is it was Isaiah 40. This became their, their calling card, what, what pushed them out to the desert. Uh, in Isaiah 40, I have this on a slide. It says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. This is what drove them there. It was to prepare a way. To make a highway. Now they're not out there with hard hats and shovels making a literal road. Because... Uh, when a Jew thinks path, they are first thinking God's word. God's word is the path. It's God's path that we are all called to walk. So what they thought is that if we hide God's word in our heart and we walk it out with everything we have and we get enough people who, who are doing this for a long enough time, eventually there will be a path. The path will become a road and the road will become a highway. And where does the text say that this is to happen? Two times it says, in the desert, prepare the path. In the desert, make the highway. 
So they went to the desert. And what's the promise of the text? The promise of the text is this, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The glory of the Lord is that the, the Shekinah, God's raw presence. And here's the deal. Not only do they believe that if, if we do this, if we prepare this road that becomes a highway, the highway of obedience, or as I, Isaiah 35 describes it, this holy highway, God's going to come. And they believe the next time God came in all of his glory, it wouldn't be so much manifested in the temple, but it would be through the coming one, the Messiah. So, go back to that, that last slide. You know what John's baptizing? Right there. You're seeing the north part of the uh, Dead Sea. That's where the Jordan River comes in. John is right there. So, if you're one of these priests at Qumran, you look out and you're like, why are all these crowds out there? What's going on? And you find out that all these people are just hoarding around John in the Jordan River. And then one day, Jesus shows up. And I say, tell me that these Essenes got it wrong. Tell me that they're faithfully preparing a way for God. Didn't have anything to do with the glory of God that shows up in Jesus Christ. And my question is this. Where are the Essenes today? Everybody wants to say, where's the glory of God? Can we bring the glory of God in? Usher it into um, our city, in, into our neighborhood. Into... It won't happen until a way has been prepared. And how serious are we about that? I love these Essenes. And so... Scholars then who know all of this, they also begin to wonder, was, was John an Essene? Well, he's a former priest, priestly family, um, and he's right where they are, and his life verse is their calling card, same life verse. Uh, he has all their passion in chutzpah, but here's the deal. God places a very unique, special call on John's life. Um, we didn't read it this week, but we read, read it a couple weeks ago. If you look at John 1, verse 6, where it says, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And so, as great as John is, John is not the light. We have to know that. But we also have to know he is sent of God 
to bear witness to the light, to point people to the light, to shine the spotlight on the light, that light being Christ. And that's John's ministry. Behold him. There he is. Look at him. Now when Mark's gospel says that all Judea, all Jerusalem went out to the desert to to see John. I mean, we, we have to let our imaginations run wild with this. Um, you have to imagine just the word of mouth and, and how it spread. In fact, Luke's gospel even says that Roman soldiers are going out to the desert to see John. So it's not even just Jews, but even Romans, Gentiles, people from all walks of life. And of course, when the temple authorities hear about this, the priests and the Levites, they have to go find, what, find out what's going on can't have some messiah figure upset the romans or threaten our, our our power base so verse 19 says now this was john's testimony when the jews of jerusalem sent priests and levites to ask him who are you now again i i, I want us to i i need to make a clarification when when, when you read the jews because john is going to talk about the jews the jews the jews a lot uh, in his gospel um, the Jews, stop and think about this. Jesus is a Jew. John the Baptist is a Jew. The 12 disciples are Jews. Paul the Apostle is a Jew. So when John in his gospel talks about Jews, he, he's talking about a small group of people. He's not talking about all Jews, but a small group of Jews who are at war with Jesus. And they are the Jews who are in power. They're namely the Jews who run the temple, the priests and the Levites. So here they come. They're in our text. And they come to John. John, who are you? John, are you the Christ? No. Well, John, are you the prophet? And they're referring there to, to Deuteronomy 18. Moses, at the end of his life, uh, in Deuteronomy 18, says that... Uh, don't worry, there will come a day when God will raise up another prophet like me, a new Moses. And many people thought that the Messiah, when he came, would be the new Moses. So they're asking John, John, are you the new Moses? No. Then they ask him, are you Elijah? No. And why would they ask if he's Elijah? Well, Malachi 4, which is the last chapter of the Old Testament, speaks of the great day of the Lord, which is referring to when the Lord comes, his coming. And it talks about how this day is going to burn like a furnace because God's justice is going to be unleashed. But then tucked in there, it talks about the son of righteousness, uh, son not being S-O-N, but the son that we could look at today. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. It's the picture of Messiah coming and repairing and recreating and remaking and restoring all things. But this is how Malachi 4 ends. This is how the Old Testament ends. Shoot. I forgot that little uh, card with all my other verses. Just wait. I have dreams about this at night. And I can't, fi I can't find it. You know, it's like, oh my. This is how the Old Testament ends. Last verses. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. 
This is why to this day, every Jewish Passover meal, there is a place setting for Elijah. It's also why during the meal, a little kid during the meal will get up, go to the door, open it up, and he's been told, you got it. is Elijah there? And of course, every time he has to come back, nope, Elijah's not there. But they're looking for Elijah because they know that when Elijah comes, the Messiah's going to come. Now, I find John's answer to this question, are you the Elijah? And he says, no. Listen to what Jesus says about John. Matthew 11. If I could have that slide. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? Prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. This is Jesus' perspective on John the Baptist. He says he's the greatest. The greatest ever born to woman. And then he says, and if you're willing to accept this, he is the Elijah who is to come. So who's right, John or Jesus? Of course Jesus is. John is wrong. And why did John get it wrong? He can't see how great he truly is. And don't you for a second think that this is a case of low self-esteem? All you have to do is read about John and his life. He did not suffer from low self-esteem. But there are reasons why people can't see how great they are. One reason is because they become so fixated on themselves, so self-focused, self-absorbed, that they see every little flaw, every little thing that's wrong with them, and they, they can't see themselves for who they truly are. I, I think this is one of the ironies of our day today. Uh, we have so much time on our hands where we can actually think about ourselves and even think about ourselves and compare ourselves to other people um, and, and we, we can become so self-absorbed with such intensity these days, which ironically has actually led to so much insecurity, low self-esteem, even things like self-loathing, self-hating have become an epidemic today. Now there's another reason for how someone cannot see how great they truly are. These are people who actually aren't looking at themselves. They aren't even thinking about themselves. They're, they're free of all that uh, self-importance and self-absorption because their eyes are so fixated on something else. And that's John. John's gaze is entirely upon Christ. He's just obsessed with Christ. And if you want to know why Jesus calls John the greatest, it's not 
because of his platform. It's not because he was the Billy Graham of his day. It's, it, it's not actually for anything that John did. It's, it's who John was. Because as I've studied this, I've, I've come to realize John might be the second most humble person to ever walk the face of the earth. Just think about humility right now. And think about how, how badly lacking humility is today. We are so into ourselves, looking at ourselves, promoting ourselves, showing ourselves off. Not only do we have the time to do this, but we have the means to do it. I mean, social media, there might be a time for us as Christians to just lay it down. Especially all of this, look at me. All the self-absorption, the self-importance. I mean, we take ourselves so doggone seriously. And things like greed, envy, jealousy, uh, coveting, all these things flow out of this self-absorption. And yet, here's John. And he doesn't even know he is the Elijah to come. Or think about this. I find this interesting. In verse 27, John says about Jesus, he says, he is the one who comes after me. And he says the same thing again in verse 30. He says, Jesus is the one who comes after me. To come after is literally to walk after. It's to follow. John is saying about Jesus, Jesus follows me. Two times. Jesus is my disciple. I don't know what you're thinking right now. But isn't it supposed to be the other way around? <laughs> but see, this speaks to the humility of the two most humble people to ever walk the face of the earth. Because now we're into Jesus' humility. Um, Jesus' whole movement is, is about Disciples who make disciples. And I love this idea that before Jesus was a disciple maker, he was an actual disciple himself. That he was actually a learner before he was a teacher. Because we know all the best leaders are also the best followers. Now, Jesus' life and ministry are about to take off, and, and, and he is going to go so far beyond John. I mean, he, he, he's going to go into a whole other stratosphere, and it's happening right here in our text. And look at John. John's not fixated on himself. John's not jealous. John, John doesn't have a tinge of envy. He's not covetous of what Jesus is and, and, and what God's doing through Jesus. All John says is, I'm just a voice. I'm, I'm a voice of, of one who is to prepare a path for the glory of the Lord. And John is already applying this verse to Jesus. In John's mind, Jesus is that glory of the Lord. Um, and 
That word Lord in Isaiah 40 is, is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is God's personal name. I mean, if you want to know what John thinks about Jesus, uh, John not only thinks Jesus is the Messiah, he's just gone so much further than that, that John is he's Yahweh among us in human form. I mean, nothing greater could be said about anyone. And John says, I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Spirit. Now, water baptism was actually something that was practiced all the time by the, by the Jews in the first century. And when I say all the time, I'm saying several times a week, for many once a day, and for even some, several times every day. They are baptizing themselves. Uh, here's what it was. Think about when we sin. Or especially when, when our lives get stuck in, in, in sin for a period of time. Hopefully we come to a place of repentance. Repentance is when we recognize our sin. And it's when we say to God, God, I am so sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me knowing that God uh, is faithful and just and forgives us of all of our sins when we ask for forgiveness. But hopefully it doesn't even end there. Hopefully then it, it keeps moving where we look at that sin and we leave it. We let it go. Or maybe we dig a hole and we bury it. And we return to God with all of our heart. That is Repentance. Now, Jews, when they do that, they, they do things through pictures and through images. In fact, in their mind, God doesn't just forgive us because David prays in Psalm 51, wash me, O God, and I will be whiter than snow. Uh, that, that's all imagery. Because when God washes us, he washes us clean of all the dirt, the stains, the shame, the guilt. It's no more. We're clean. So it's in light of this that in every village there would be a pool. And it was usually right before their synagogue. Um, there were several pools before the temple. Um, and, and, and these pools were regularly used of the people to wash. To repent. And if you were a rich priest, you actually had a pool in your house. Not so you could swim, but so you could repent. Wash. This is John's baptism. It's a baptism of repentance, but it's even more than this. Because in verse 28, there's a little detail that says that John was baptizing on the other side of the Jordan. Again, there's imagery here. Something bigger is going on. For instance, think about when God delivered his people from Egypt. God's people passed through the water. In fact, the rabbis speak of that water as the birth canal. Because as Israel passed through the water, they were being born again. Forty years later, when Israel again enters the promised land, they pass through the water. And they do it at the exact spot that John is baptizing. And that is not coincidence. So just think about that. When Joshua, now who is the leader of God's people, 
leads them through the waters. They are leaving their old life, and they are trusting God for a new life, and they are entering this new life in promised land with God. And now John has picked that spot, and he's not just there, but he's on the other side of the Jordan to say, everyone now needs to re-enter. You can't just say anymore, well, Abraham's my father, or I'm a Jew, therefore I'm in. Messiah is here. In other words, we're all unclean. Jew and Gentile, we all need to re-enter through Christ. And here they come, in droves, both sinner and saint, priest, prostitute, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile. And they come to the other side of the Jordan to pass through the waters, and who's leading them? The new Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. And John says about him, I baptize with water. He will baptize with the Spirit. Water in the Bible is the symbol of washing, of being forgiven, of being made clean. But spirit in the Bible takes that even further. Because the spirit does the work of creation, of new creation. Think about it, creation. The first thing that we read after the chaos is described, the spirit hovers over it and enters it. Um, and all of a sudden the, the, the chaos is born again. Jesus did not just come to the world to forgive us. He came to the world to recreate us, to remake us, to baptize us, not just in water, but with his spirit. And this is why John, as he's looking at this Jesus, who he is, what he came to bring the world, he says, I'm unworthy even untie this man's sandals. Now we hardly give this a second thought because we don't live in a hot climate that's very dusty where everybody wears sandals. We are the biggest bodily struggle we have in terms of cleanliness, is, is not our pits. Well, it is our pits, our armpits for us, but for them it wasn't. It was, it was their feet. I mean, their feet in the ancient world became so disgusting um, that a person had to untie their sandals and wash their feet several times a day. Even slaves, I mean, there were rules. There were rules that even slaves were not allowed to wash another person's feet. It was too low. It was too demeaning. Do you see what John's saying? In light of all that Jesus is, I'm not even worthy to do or be the lowest of the low. When's the last time thoughts like that have entered your mind? I mean, there's no ego with John. He literally sees himself as small, even less than small, as the least. 
And if you want to know why, why, why Jesus says John is the greatest, it's because of this. John, are you a prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the Christ? No. I'm just a voice. But look, there he is. Behold him, the Lamb of God. How can we become like this? Humble, small, just a voice, yet still confident and bold. A voice that is heard. I'll tell you how. By getting our eyes off ourself and our eyes on Christ. See, John knows himself in light of Christ. In light of Christ, John would say, I am nothing but Christ is everything. Can your heart say that today? And think about what John calls Christ. There's so many things he could call him, but he calls him the Lamb. Because the Lamb points us to the greatness of God. It, it, it points us to how God wins. This goes all the way back to Exodus. Uh, how did God deliver his people from slavery in Egypt to bring them to himself into a place of freedom? A lamb. A slaughtered lamb. And it even goes further back than that. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Why, why were Abraham and Isaac spared one day of God's justice? It was because a lamb, a slaughtered lamb, wasn't. And this is why God instructs his people, when you approach my house, come with your lamb. When, when, when you approach me and celebrate Passover, uh, the great deliverance that I provided you, come with your lamb. So day after day, week after week, year after year, generation after generation, here they came to God's house with their lamb. Believing that it's a slaughtered lamb. That's how God heals, how God forgives, restores, redeems, recreates. But all those lambs only pointed to the lamb. Because there's all these prophecies about the Messiah in the text. But the one that grabbed them that they didn't know what to do with. Isaiah 53, where it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. This is the lamb. There's a famous piece of artwork that I think captures how John saw God in Christ. This is called Agnus Dei in Latin. That means Lamb of God. This is John's view of God. That God became that. That the all-powerful God became that weak 
that the greatest became the least. Because this is how God wins. This is how he delivers, heals, restores, recreates. You see the stunning humility of God. Do I see it? John saw it. And when we see it, there is no place for pride. Not even an ounce. And if we want to be like John with his humility, we must, we must, we must get our eyes off ourselves, And we must get our eyes on Christ. Behold the Lamb. Where are your eyes? What are you looking at? What are you calling other people to look at? Is it, hey, look at me? Or is it, hey, behold him? Shatter our pride. Root it out of our lives. And God, this is not something we can do on our own, but something you can do when we behold you, when we look at you.